Hi, Eric. Hi, Aaron. Um, let's talk today about. Let's do it. Well, uh, we could talk a lot about um, BYU and Ricks and things, but I want to talk about spies. Spies. Oh, yes, that is good. Um, I just remembered that part of the chapter, and I was just starting to review it, but I'm afraid I didn't finish. So you're going to be the expert. Oh, great. Okay, so uh, we're talking about uh, the church education system. As part of our journey through David O. McKay and the rise of modern Mormonism by yeah. Prince and Wright. Yeah, and the fun part is spying in the 1960s and McCarthyism. And yes. that's kind of the, the stuff Something that we've talked about before. That's the kind of stuff that I'm excited about. <laughs> I don't know why. It seems a bit perverse. <laughs> it's chapter eight of the book. Um, and um, yeah, why, why don't we just jump into it? Sure, let's do it. So the education system, chapter eight. I'm a, I'm a proud graduate of the education system of the church. I have also passed through the education system of the church. I graduated from seminary, went to institute, transferred to BYU, got my BA from BYU. That's pretty cool. I did not go to BYU, but I did go to seminary and to institute. So seminary, for those that don't know, four years of high school, where you take a class a day um, about church stuff. We covered the four standard works, I think. We did. Yeah, Book of Mormon, Old, Old Testament, New Testament, and the Doctrine and Covenants. But not in that order. Not in that order. No. That was a fairly <laughs> random order. Um, then the um, then Institute class was for in college. We did kind of the same thing. So seminary program, the Institute program, those are kind of programs that are that are that are it's so what's interesting is that we see nowadays the vestiges of the church of what the church education system could have been if a certain person could have had gotten their way yeah which we'll talk about it could have there could have been a different reality that we live in here in 2021 but so you teach happen. seminary I do teach seminary. I am in the last year of my tour of duty. Uh -huh. I have enjoyed it and I'm very ready to be done. <laughs> yeah. This is, being a seminary teacher in the church is one of the toughest callings. It's the closest thing to like, you really should be getting paid, I think, in the church without well, actually getting yeah. paid. They do pay some seminary teachers in Utah, right? In Idaho and but they're, Arizona. But they're Usually they're teachers. They, though, they are teaching full time. Yeah. No, they, I mean, all they do is teach seminary, but they all teach they it do. all day. Yeah. They teach it all day long because um, there are so many Latter-day Saint kids that the churches made deals with the schools to let them leave campus for a period and, and do some religion for one of their electives. That's not how it is where I grew up. It's not how it is here. No, it's not. Kids get up early in the morning. Yeah, I got you up. No, I would probably be six, six too if it weren't for seminary. Because <laughs> you're wait, you're saying like it made you short? Yeah, yeah. I was going to be taller <laughs> than my dad, but seminary prevented that. So <laughs> I, I hope God appreciates that sacrifice. How early did you get up for seminary? Um, school started at seven twenty-seven, which is a weird time, but that's when it started. And I want to say seminary started at six thirty. Yeah. So I had to be up in time to get to seminary, That's which was seminary about a started. 10, 15 minute drive as part of a carpool. Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, what an experience that was. Um, 
I mean, I did get a lot of out of it. Like I do know the scriptures like a lot better than I would have if I hadn't gone through seminary. Yeah, I, I don't want to knock any Christians who aren't Latter-day Saints, but when uh, Mike Huckabee was running for president mm-hmm. back in 2008 or 2012, I don't remember exactly what year this was, um, NPR did a story. They went to some of his rallies and they talked to people who were uh, big fans of Mike Huckabee. And Huckabee peppered his talks with scriptural references. And um, they asked the people there, like, uh, what, do these, what do these mean? And people did not know. They uh-huh. did not know where the stories came from. But they finally found one person who knew all the stories. And that was a Mormon. It wasn't one of his evangelical fans. It was a Mormon person. So, <laughs> yeah, go like Mormon. Seminary works. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, Ernest, okay, where, where do you want to start? Well, I want to start by reading a quotation from David O. McKay. Uh, I believe this was before he became the president of the church. I should look it up real fast. Let me, let oh, me do that real fast. I want to say, and I'm going to put this on the internet. My very first day of seminary, my freshman year, I was a shy, I was nervous, right? And I dumped orange juice in my lap. <laughs> just, just all over it. I had no social knowledge about what to do with the situation. Did your parents bring you another pair of pants? So when you, you started think, high school, an hour later, you'd be okay? My mom was my seminary teacher. Actually. Oh, okay. So yeah. she gave you her pants. Whatever it was. <laughs> And um, man, that's how I started my seminary career, covered in orange shoes. Nice. I know seminary, like I know I learned a lot from it just because the evidence is evident, Mm -hmm. but I really have so few memories of seminary, but I actually don't have a lot of memories of school either for that matter. Yeah. I mean, clearly I learned something. (laughs) Yeah. On your, when we're also going and getting older. There is that, I suppose. Okay. Anyway, so I was wrong. This is 1958. He is president of the church. Uh, he is in um, New Zealand where there's a church high school. He is mm-hmm. speaking at the dedication of that high school. And he says, wait, there was a church high school. Yes. In fact, I believe there are still church high schools in New Zealand, though. I wouldn't swear to it. It's something we should look up before mm-hmm. we insist it's true. But I, I believe there still are. And there mm-hmm. are in Mexico, too. So there, there are a few countries with big LDS population. I think there are in the Philippines, actually, now that I think about it also. Are there church high schools in Utah? What a non-Utah question to ask. No, there are not. Though there are private schools that would like you to believe they are church high schools. Okay. (laughs) Not quite the same thing. In fact, I would say quite a different thing, in my opinion. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. David O'McKay says, Members of the church are admonished to acquire learning by study, also by faith and prayer, and to seek after everything that is virtuous, lovely, or of good report or praiseworthy. In this seeking after truth, they are not confined to the narrow limits of dogma or creed, but are free to launch into the realm of the infinite, for they know that truth is truth where'er it is found, whether on Christian or on heathen ground. That could be the motto of Face and Hat right there. Mm-hmm. That's great. I love this quote when I read it. Truth is truth. Yeah. Um, it's interesting the where air. I mean, where their art act well, they part. Isn't that a McKay thing? It is. Yeah, it's something he saw on. I think it was a church. Anyway, on in Ireland, on some wall. No, Scotland. Scotland. Um, 
I don't, it's clear that he's quoting something here at the end where it says truth is truth where it is found, whether on Christian or on heathen ground. I have not tried Googling it, but I suppose if I did, I'd find out who he was quoting at the last part of that quotation of him. Well, I think we're professionals. We can Google it right now. Okay. Orson, Orson Whitney. Orson Whitney. Oh my gosh. Orson yeah. Whitney. <gasps> no, wait, maybe not. No. Oh, no. Maybe. It sound it could it, Orson Whitney makes total sense. So Orson Whitney is a, a prophet or not a prophet. He's a poet who, as you know, like poets, prophets, near equivalence in my cosmology according to earlier episodes of Face and Hat. Uh, but he's he's a Latter-day Saint poet. I want to say he was a seventy or something, though I'm not bothering to look it up. Well, um, it seems like even he is quoting it. This is a talk oh, from really? 19, from 1988. Okay. At, um, oh no, that's not Orson Whitney. No, then. sorry, 1888. Okay, that's that would be Orson Whitney. Yeah. And it looks like he's quoting it. Yeah, so maybe it's a him or something. Can, can you read me the Orson Whitney? But it is not my present purpose to pursue the subject to which this train of thought would naturally lead. It sufficeth me to know and to testify that this people are friends, not the foes of education, that they are seekers after wisdom, lovers and lovers of light and truth, universal truth, which like the waters of earth or the sunbeams of heaven has but one source. Let it earthly origin be what it may. And then he does this quote. The quotation. I yeah. love it. And it keeps going. And worthy of our love and admiration, speaking of truth, mm -hmm. whether far or near, high or low, whether blazing as a star in the blue vault of heaven or springing like a floweret from the soul, soil. And I would say, whether or not it's in a hat and someone's face is said <laughs> in that, inserted into that hat. You this know, is great. I bet Orson Whitney's quoting himself right there. I bet that's his poem. <laughs> maybe you're right it is oh, written like a prove me wrong but my guess is orson whitney is the original is the originator of that um but i love it that's like so dane mormon right that is the latter-day saint <laughs> ethos is like all knowledge is our knowledge so you know share the, the second link in my google search is why we're afraid of mormons <laughs> boston they know University. the bible better than you do <laughs> <laughs> hi everybody this is Aaron after the fact, and I got to go down quite a fun rabbit hole when researching this quote, which we thought was from Orson Whitney, but it turns out is actually from Isaac Watts. Now, Isaac Watts, he was an interesting guy. He lived in the 1600s to 1700s, and he was an English Christian minister, and he was a hymn writer, he was a theologian, he was a logician, and... He wrote several books on logic, in addition to the hymns he wrote. So in the, one of these books on logic, which was a supplement to a previous book, this book is called The Improvement of the Mind, or A Supplement to the Art of Logic, containing a variety of remarks and rules for the attainment and communication of useful knowledge in religion, in the sciences, and in the common life. It's a really, really long title. But I think this is where the poem comes from, which Orson Whitney summarized, and which David O. McKay, I think, summarized. And here's the full poem. Seize upon truth where'er it is found, among your friends, among your foes, on Christian or on heathen ground, the flowers divine where it grows. Neglect the prickles and assume the rose. And it's just a lovely poem. I think this is the first place it is. And thanks for this digression. Back to the show.
I want to talk about truth. I know we're going to talk about the education system, but it is worth every now and then just touching on face and hat fundamentals, right? Sure. Why not? We, I, I don't know if we have in a couple episodes, so let's yeah. do it. Funda- face and hand is a fundamental truth seeker, right? Yes. And one of the things we love is when truth has been hidden. You can think of the reason why we call our show Face and Hat. Is it because Joseph Smith is kind of funny how he's looking into a hat, right? Or is it because he's searching for truth in, the, in a dark place, right? He's, you know, he's cutting off distraction. He's looking at a seer stone. He's doing something really interesting. I think it's, an, it's a weird situation <laughs> looking back at it 200 years later, but um, you know, seeking for truth is another way to look at it. Um, some of that truth has only been found hundreds of years later, right? This history of David O'McKay is already 20 years old or 15 years old, something like that. And, but it, it was um, just really enlightening as the, as the truth that uncovered and put together and synthesized. Historical truth, scientific truth, this is what we're looking for. That's right. And in the words of David O. McKay, we are all for learning uphill. Well, that's, I like that phrase too. That's a good. Yeah. One. We should, once we, once we have one thing mastered, we should take a step uphill and try something a little more complicated, a little more intellectually challenging. David O. McKay loved teaching. He was a educator when he was called to be an apostle and left his post yeah. as a principal somewhere. BYU School of Education is now named after him. There you go. Um, and he loved BYU. BYU got big during David O'Malley's time. BYU did get big. Yeah. It grew and it grew. Right around the same time that David O'Malley became the prophet, Ernest Wilkinson became the uh, president of BYU and uh, was in that position more or less the entire time President McKay was President McKay. And Wilkinson was an ambitious fellow. He fought and fought well to change BYU from a small local school into a major university. Um, I believe it's still the largest church-owned school in the United States. And there's a lot of competition for that. There are a lot of churches owning schools in the United States. And it's a good school too. Yeah, BYU is a famous school and um, wasn't when he took when he took over, right? I mean, it was no. a small school. Yeah, it was Built a local lots school. of buildings, expanded its scope, hired lots of people, mm-hmm. and essentially like quadrupled or something. It's something like that. Yeah, I forget the exact number, but. How do you think going to school at BYU is different than going to school at Berkeley? Well, I didn't go to Berkeley. I wanted to go to Berkeley, but when I was ready to, so actually, can I, can I share a, a little bit of personal story here? Sure. Um, so I didn't know when I was a senior in high school, nobody told me that there were deadlines for applying to universities. So I, I missed all those deadlines. I had there no idea. <laughs> nobody told me first in my family, not a great counseling system attached behind. Um, I had no idea. My friends were applying. I was like, I'll get around to that eventually. I took home a couple of brochures from the career center, but I never applied. So I went to Bakersfield college. I have no regrets. Um, my gen ed, my sister who was two years younger than me and was second in her class 
and got um, so much money to go to Pepperdine, which at the time was the most expensive school in the country. And she spent the same amount I did at community college. Mm -hmm. And our first two years were roughly the same. Like there, there's no real significant difference between our first two years. So anyway, I finished my time at BC and I am getting ready to transfer. And I really wanted to go to Berkeley because that was where I had, I had always wanted to go. Uh, but Berkeley plays the game a little bit differently than the rest of the UCs. And, um, or at least they did. I don't know if they still do. But in 1998, when I was filling out my application, they were not accepting any January transfers. So I, Berkeley was off the table. So I applied to Santa Barbara instead, UC Santa Barbara, um, and I got in. And then at the last minute, I just felt like I needed to apply to BYU. So I put together my application. I overnighted it because it was not digital application in those days. And I got it in and I ended up going to BYU instead. Um, which is funny because I always had a bad attitude about BYU, which I inherited from my father um, because of his weird Utah hangups. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I went to BYU and it was great. I really liked BYU. I have no regrets about going to BYU. Um, it's a it's a great school and it is a unique experience. Like there's been a lot of talk lately with Kamala Harris ascending to the vice presidency about Howard University and how going to Howard was a ex great experience for her where she really got to explore what it meant to be black in America because you know, it's a historically black university and, um, and those are the people she went to school with. And I, I feel like when I read those articles, I feel like I know what that's like because when I went to BYU, um, I got to see the breadth and the heights, but also, also the dark sides of what it means to be a Latter-day Saint. Like everything is a BYU. You can find anything you're looking for just like you can anywhere. And I think that was a really good experience for me. Um, anyway, that was my experience at BYU. I don't remember, uh, I know this was, this was tangential to what you were going to say, Aaron, but I no longer remember where you were headed. Well, I just wanted to know, that's good, thanks. But I, I wanted to just hear about what it's like to go to BYU because it's, I feel like it's very different than going to someplace like Oregon State where I went to. But yeah, it might that, be. Do you think it is? I mean, yeah, I, in some ways it is. Um, Tell me about this magical land. <laughs> so for instance, I took history of the English language from Royal Skousen, uh -huh. who is best known for his uh, concordance of all the different versions of the Book of Mormon. Um, and he was, he was a great professor. I learned a lot from him. But the big project he was working on was the Book of Mormon. So he would have examples from that. And um, when I took writing for uh, children and adolescents from Dean Hughes, who's an excellent writer, written a lot of Mormon stuff, written a lot of uh, YA stuff. And while um, he was my professor, his wife was called into the General Relief Society presidency. And um, not that wasn't the point of the class or anything, but uh, it was just kind of like everything was always connected to the latter saint faith. And the way that we talk on this conference, in this conference, in this podcast, that was that was a Mormonism right there. <laughs> the way we talk in this podcast, like connecting all kinds of ideas to our theology and doctrine, that's kind of what every class was. Like every class was an intellectual game, like connecting things to latter day saint faith and sometimes it was weird like um BYU I fought them and fought them but they forced me to retake biology 101 because they didn't like my transfer credit so I took it my final year I took biology 101 again um and it was fine it was easy because I knew everything uh not that's not boasting like 
it was bio 101. Like it, it wasn't that hard. Um, as, not that I'm a scientist, but I, I love the sciences. So the basics I definitely knew. But it was interesting. Um, the professor, like when we got to evolution, like he definitely made it clear that evolution is real and that should not shake anyone's testimony. And there's no question that there were a lot of freshmen in the audience for whom this was a very new idea. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, it is, I guess, it's the fun house mirror of universities, mm -hmm. but the quality of my education was solid. And um, yeah, mm. I mean, a lot of smart people come out of BYU. Um, well, why, so who cares? Well, it's a good question. Um, and so, so there's kind of like three things happening in this chapter that I think we want to talk about. One is this like, I, this principle that McKay has already, we've already quoted him talking about like all knowledge is ours. And there's like a great story of how um, Hugh Nibley wrote a Sunday school manual and other general authorities wanted to cancel it because it was, it required too much of the saints. It was over their heads. And um, David O. McKay said, no, if it's beyond their reach, let them reach for it. So there's this like, there's this idea that education is of worth of itself and all kinds of education, not just practical education, but the growth of all kinds of, um, in all subjects, and that education itself can be a road to having a better character as well. So there's that, that's kind of separate from the universities, just the concept of education almost platonically. Then there's the growth of the church education system. So we are talking seminaries and institutes, uh, but we're mostly talking BYU here, which exploded in terms of population and in terms of faculty. But then we get to the dark side, which is Wilkinson, um, who becomes the morality police and wants to fire people if he doesn't like the way they pay their tithing. And, and then gets to a point where he wants to fire people if they're not um, politically conservative enough and figures out ways to manipulate church leadership into thinking that uh, that's not what he's that doing. they agree with him, but he's, yeah. a, he's a little slick and sly. Mm -hmm. And so all these things are going on at the same time, and which is interesting because in a way, these things contradict each other. Like this idea that all knowledge is good and yet we need to crush, um, you know, the, the Democrats on campus, like, these concepts are inherently at odds with each other. And um, okay, so but let's let's break this down. So I, yeah. one quick comment I had about character, right? Um, sure. This was a real focus on the first part of this, that McKay believed that education was not just about um, science, math, and, and you know, reading, writing, arithmetic, right? Yeah. But it was a, a good school would build character as well. Right? right. Um, would you say that reflected on your education at BYU? Because I'm not sure it reflected on my, like, I don't think I, I saw that that was a guiding philosophy behind my education in a non-LDS uh, university. Well, there's a cliche at BYU that religion classes are taught by people who are only interested in indoctrinating you and are not necessarily very 
intellectually grounded and the rest of the campus is much more interested in the facts of the matter as opposed to um, playing nice by your conservative small town Utah upbringing. Um, no offense to people with conservative small town Utah upbringings, but th there's kind of that that like cliche, and um, and you can see it. There is like a tension sometimes. And uh, granted, I graduated more than 20 years. Oh no, not more than 20 years ago. Almost 20 years ago, and it may be different. I don't know. It seems like the religion department um, is going multiple directions at once from afar, but. It was true, like the religion department really felt a need to make you um, have the most conservatively religious viewpoints possible. Whereas in my English classes, my literature classes, we were very interested in complex ideas. Although English was an interesting one uh, because there were a lot of people who, uh, because it's a big major and because it's a, you know, it's sort of a default major for a lot of people we did have problems with people complaining about books and every syllabus included a thing about like, these are the books. If you don't want to read them, don't complain, just drop the class now. Oh. Because there were people who would complain about such things. And um, yeah. But it's interesting because I said the word character as when I was asking my question. Yeah, so my, and, my answer is- And I don't you think kind of talked about conservatives versus Democrats. I did because I think what happens is people who are people believe that character aligns with their personal values. And so when you have the religion department, which is more directly interested in issues of character and more generally conservative um, in population, pushing character harder, you get this sense that character is aligned with conservatism. Um, well, let me read the quote. Yeah, let's hear it. All right. Because so, I don't believe anything I'm saying, by the way. Okay. <laughs> the development of character stood ahead of career training as the primary goal, goal of education. Okay. So, quoting McKay, character is the aim of true education, and science, history, and literature are but the means used to accomplish this desired end. Character is not the result of chance, but of continuous right thinking and right acting. True education seeks to make men and women not only good mathematicians, proficient linguists, profound scientists, or brilliant literary lights, literary lights, but also honest men with virtue, temperance, and brotherly love. It seeks to make men and women who prize truth, justice, wisdom, benevolence, and self-control as the choicest acquisitions of a successful life. I just don't see that in the education that I, that I got. I took classes on science, mathematics, and biology they were, did not focus on character, but it was there if you looked for it. So I took a class called Oops, Mistakes in Science, okay? <laughs> and it was excellent. And it was all about um, people who um, falsified evidence and um, kind of uh, either, you know, they didn't get away with it because they were in this class. <laughs> <laughs> and um, some of them were like out like it was just incredible that they did so it. these weren't really oops these were outright frauds <laughs> yeah kind of, some of them yeah <laughs> and um you know that um that class was essentially a character lesson even if they weren't because it was essentially about ethics i took an ethics course i took a course on latin american studies i took um these courses that really were 
you know, you could say character building, but that's not what I really read. When I think about my education, I think about computer science, mm -hmm. right? Do you want to hear a fun fact? Okay. Let's play a guessing game real fast. Oh, Aaron, but, but I was, oh, go. you finished finish first. I thought you were done. I, okay. Jump on that's in. That's what, what I'm trying to say. That is a different at BYU. Is character a well, fundamental layer underneath your biology class? I may not be the best person to ask because I was in the humanities. And so we were absolutely talking about these questions anyway, mm -hmm. um, which actually segues back into my fun, fun fact, if you're ready okay. for it now. Okay, fun fact. <laughs> Do you care, would you care to guess, Aaron, what is the most taught work of, a, of fiction in American universities? Oh, this is such a great question. A fiction. Yes. The most okay. taught work of fiction in American universities. So, I mean, it's got to be something like obvious, like um, Grapes of Wrath or. It's definitely a book you've heard of before. Yeah. Or Lord of the Flies or <laughs> something like that. Uh, I'll give you a hint. To, to Kill a Mockingbird. The reason it's the most taught work in American fiction is because more than just literature classes study it. It is, it is a staple in science classes. Okay. I don't know. It's Frankenstein. Oh, okay. And yeah, and I mean, if you see Frankenstein is only about the dangers of science, like you're oversimplifying it. But the reason it's the most taught book is because um, people recognize that even if you're studying only the sciences, you still need a grounding in, shall we call them character adjacent studies. Um, and Frankenstein is seen as a path to that. Like you take Frankenstein so you can have some of these questions you were talking about, about ethics, for instance. And um, it gives you the opportunity to talk about those things in hopefully a, a more rich way. Okay, that's awesome. That's a good fun fact. Yeah. And it makes me want to reread Frankenstein. It's pretty good. I'm not actually sure I'm if I've ever read it. It's not that long. You could, you could crank it out. Okay. So if you haven't read it, you're in for a surprise because it is not what you're expecting. <laughs> <laughs> All right, excellent. Um, so that's about character. That was kind of the first point we were going to talk about. I, I wonder, I wonder, I don't know how, I, the whole, you know, separation of church and state thing, right? Yeah. It's such a hard problem. I can't imagine being a teacher nowadays, right? And having and you, you know you teach english right you how many do. How, how much of you do you get to pick the books that you teach i do and does yeah, that more is or that less. A, do you are you pursuing an insidious agenda as you pick them <laughs> absolutely <laughs> my insidious agenda is like keeping myself entertained so <laughs> okay okay it's not to raise the character of the people you teach you know it's i don't think that's irrelevant um because there are a lot of things we don't teach that people need. Like we don't really teach um, number literacy, right? Like the ability to read statistics in the newspaper and understand how people might be misleading you. Mm -hmm. um, that mm -hmm. isn't really taught in math classes. And um, we don't really teach civics in a way that um, when crazy stuff happens in the federal government, you can understand how that fits um, in terms of like say, shall we call them the character of our civilization? Mm -hmm. And so I absolutely feel that it is my role as an English teacher to do everything. What I like to tell my students is English class is every class and every class is English class. Like there is nothing outside the purview of English class. I do math, I do science, I do history. Like if it's relevant in any way to what we're talking about, we're gonna talk about it. 
And um, so I do like a conspiracy unit with my sophomores because I think it's important that they understand how conspiracy thinking works. And just telling people don't fall for conspiracy theories, that doesn't work. Um, you know, when I do just finished Animal Farm with the freshmen and um, the final assignment is I have them compare Animal Farm to a contemporary nation, somebody, a, a nation out there right now, which requires them to understand a little bit more of the world that they're in. So my personal feeling is that's the role of English class is to give you this kind of breadth that President McKay talked about, this kind of breadth that's necessary to have character because just a few facts in isolation, there's no, there's no matrix of information that allows you to understand how everything fits together. It is such a, that's good. That's, that's what I'm looking for. I didn't know that that's what I was looking for, but that's good. That, to me, that really does seem like teaching character. The character itself though is a terrible word because it doesn't, I'm having a hard time, I'm having a hard time define it in my head. I, I'm beginning to think it's a bit like pornography wherein I know yeah. it when I see it. <laughs> I'm a little allergic to the word uh, character. I was surprised. I looked up this quotation that you read a little while ago about characters, the aim of true education. Yeah. And I discovered from the end notes that it comes from the same talk in New Zealand that we quoted at the top. Oh, there you go. Which is interesting to me because as I was rereading this section, it felt to me that those were in conflict with each other. Not, not really in conflict, but when people talk about teaching character, I feel, and this comes back to the bias you caught me out in before when I was talking about religion professors. Mm -hmm. I feel like when we're talking about character, we're talking about a very specific interpretation of character, mm -hmm. which is very conservative and very religious. And um, I don't think that's the only route to character. As the quote does continue, it is regrettable that modern education so little emphasize these fundamental elements of true character. The principal aim of our, many of our schools and colleges seems to be to give the students purely intellectual attainment and means of gaining a livelihood and to give but passing attention to the nobler and more necessary development among moral lines. Um, okay, well, this is a great conversation. And I don't know what the right answer is, of course, but I think it's a fun thing to talk about. Can we talk about spies yet? Um, yeah, that, that just means that I won't get to complain about the cost of education today. <laughs> okay, well, no, you should. Now's a good time to do it. Well, my own my theme is that I really I think that what President McKay is getting at is the same reason general education is so important. Before you specialize, you spend time engaging with lots of different subjects, yeah. and I think that's really vital. Like. Um, I don't think it's a coincidence that Mark Zuckerberg dropped out and seems to have a complete inability to understand a lot of the things he should have learned in some of those basic humanities courses. Mm -hmm. um, I, I really think that the breadth of a uh, general education, uh, the purpose of a bachelor's degree is, yeah, there's a bit of specialization, but it's really that proof of general knowledge. And I, I think that's so valuable. You need to have that kind of breadth of understanding of the world so that your specialty um, doesn't turn you into a monster. Okay, well, maybe before we talk about... It shouldn't cost so much. <laughs> well, maybe before we talk about spies, let's talk okay. about how we almost did have a nationwide junior, sure. college, junior college LDS system. So there were a number of things when I read this book the first time that just made me like so excited. And some of them were... Um, things that explained um, the reality of the modern church to me in ways that I had not understood it before. And some of them were shocking things like um, baseball baptisms 
And some of them were things like the junior college system, the, propo the, the proposed junior college system that would have resulted, in my opinion, in a very different church today than we have. In the 50s and 60s, Wilkinson wanted to um, create a string of junior colleges. Um, he already had Ricks College. Uh, there were a couple others that did belong to the church and they sold to local communities. Um, uh, but they were considering opening uh, junior colleges in Arizona, in Anaheim, and here in the Bay Area, in Oregon. Can I just ask a stupid question? Yeah. What's a junior college? Junior college covers, uh, well, it, it can do a couple of different things. Uh, but the basic idea of a junior college is it's those first two years, those general education years before you specialize. I mean, that's what I thought it was. And that's what I assumed during the whole thing. But I realized that I might just be dumb enough to not understand words. No, it's good to ask questions. Um, like there's a real bias against junior college I've noticed among the seniors at my high school, mm -hmm. but um, it's a good alternative. Yeah, it's really good. I think it's, yeah, I think it's a think, lot of money. Speaking of cost, and this is why I'm bringing it up because of cost. Yeah. Right. Um, this, this idea of a church owned tithing paid for junior college system that would that would have schools even as far as san francisco right yeah away right. from that me i mean how would that have worked i mean my kids could have gotten free education for a couple of years it's also an interesting question like imagine aaron that there is a lds junior college somewhere here in the bay yeah that would just change the nature of the relationship between the church and our region um, how would it change it? I don't know, right? Uh, probably before 1978, it would have had some really negative aspects. <laughs> um, and probably around 2008 with Prop 8, there would have been some negative things, but there probably also would have been a lot of really positive things that came out of it too. Um, it would just be, it would be a different, at least the church in America at the very least would have a very different relationship. I think if there was a church in Anaheim, or excuse me, a junior college in Anaheim, and one, I don't know where in Oregon, I don't, I don't remember if it said, but you know, say in your hometown, right? What if there had been an LDS school uh, was there? It, was it, yeah, yeah. I can't remember where it said, uh, or if it said, but it just would have changed the nature of things. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I'm really excited by that alternate world that exists somewhere in the multiverse yeah <laughs> um i don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing honestly like i i can see a lot of positives and um the reasons they didn't do it were very good i mean wilkinson was spending money so like crazy. much money yeah it'd be so expensive I, I couldn't believe it as i was reading about this i was like you gotta be kidding how could yeah. earth could we have had the church have paid for yeah paid not for at that all time this. not at this time not at that time i mean and um you know the church was spending a huge amount of money on churches see you next episode yeah next episode all the money spent on churches <laughs> even though um yeah mckay didn't like spending money but he spent a lot of it <laughs> yeah well it's interesting i mean yeah it is something they say they make sure to point out he buried his frugality in this particular regard which was expanding the because he believed the, it was important the church education the, the education system and and i think it's important for these two reasons right one is that education is inherently important um, you know, in the 1880s or whenever it was when, uh, George Q. Cannon told the saints to stop coming to Zion. I remember a talk in junior or excuse me, a, a talk in general conference when I was 
uh, in junior high or high school that sort of you, said the same thing about BYU. Like, you mean you mean specifically stop moving to Utah? Right. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yes. Like build Zion where you are. Yeah. I hate it when people from Utah call Utah Zion. <laughs> but I think it's I think it's era appropriate for the 1880s. Uh-huh, uh, but sure. it, but there was a similar talk when I was a, a youth. Um, about BYU like not everybody needs to come to BYU we're not going to expand BYU anymore like yeah, go to school where familiar. you are and yeah. I really I really bought into that and so it was surprising to me when I felt inspired to go to BYU and ended up going mm-hmm. um, but I mean so education is important and we want people to be educated we want the saints to go to school and there's a lot of ways in which we support people in that like the perpetual education fund is I don't think that's on the tithing slips anymore mm-hmm. but for a while but that was based on the perpetual immigration fund to connect two dots. Once again, mm-hmm. um, I used to donate to that a lot with the idea of helping people who couldn't afford to go to school, go to school because education is inherently valuable, but there's also this idea that education is also a route to um, more religion in our lives. And um, as, as a seminary teacher, it's been pointed out to me by uh, various local leaders um, who also work with the youth that, I, for kids who come to seminary, I see them more than anybody else. Like I have more than anybody else from church. I mm-hmm. have the most interaction with them. Yeah. For, by, by far. Right? By far. You see them, yeah. you see them four times a week. And right. then like, well, during the pandemic, nobody else sees them. Yeah. <laughs> I guess <laughs> they, right. have the, I have the, they have a few. They have the Wednesday play among us. So. Yeah. And then they have something on, on Sunday. They have Sunday. Yeah. But, um, but it's true. Like, and I remember my seminary teachers better than I remember my Sunday school teachers. Oh, yeah. I only remember one of my Sunday school teachers, but I can tell you who I had each year of high school mm-hmm. as a seminary teacher. Um, yeah, good teacher yeah. will stick with you. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's fun to imagine what it might have been like. I suppose it's all for the best, but... Uh, yeah, there's no way we could afford it. Yeah, and no. Wilkinson tried hard, so he successfully he was pretty upset when he got turned down. He successfully grew BYU, right? And yes. he just thought that he could do it with the junior college system. He yeah. tried, like, and he went, and he was disingenuous on several occasions. Yes, uh, the 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 book is so polite. <laughs> you know, you know when you, when you're in court and they at least according to television, you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Yeah. He was fine with the truth and nothing but the truth. But not uh, the whole maybe, truth. But definitely not the whole truth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so um, anyway, you know, his house of cards came tumbling down and he was not able to get what he wanted. And it, yeah. But um, I mean, he also organized a spy ring. Yes. Yeah. And this is, I couldn't believe it. I was, yeah. so, I was giggling so hard. <laughs> I wonder what, what were you, what were you thinking? What was, <laughs> you know, I hate reading things like this because I just wish they weren't true. <laughs> oh man. Okay. His dumb little cloak and dagger stuff. Like, okay. Come on, so man. Go ahead. Dear reader, go to the Irkin Ernest L. Wilkinson webpage. And this is what I want to make sure when you, when you pass on dear, dear listener, and somebody makes a Wikipedia page about you and, (laughs) um, 
and you have had a, a life worthy of a Wikipedia page because I have not at this moment in time. I hope that it doesn't include a subheading that includes something along the lines of the 1966 BYU spy ring controversy. <laughs> Oh, Wilkinson. Like, I, there's this, you know how the, that ship got stuck in the canal, right? Yeah. It's such, it was such a big deal. One of the great tweets I saw about that ship was a web page, was a Wikipedia page, where all the, it was like all the ships in the fleet had red links. Except for that one. Don't make your, because don't, nope, it was the only one that somebody had typed anything about. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want, sometimes you don't want your, Okay, so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna quote this thing. Okay, let's hear it. What this page is, are you on? This is the I'm not on the page. I'm on the Wikipedia. Oh. oh, you're on the Wikipedia page. All right, I will just listen. Okay, extremely conserve. Oh, I should say before I read this, this quote from Wikipedia is drawing heavily from a paper written by Jeff D. Blake in 1995 called. Ernest L. Wilkinson and the 1966 BYU spy ring, a response to Michael to D. Michael Quinn. I don't know who that is. Uh, oh, well, you should know. You should know real quick. So D. Michael Quinn is very important LDS historian. Okay. Uh, fun fact, I just learned about him. Shout out to Cal Burke if you're listening. Um, he was randomly chosen among the history department to write a biography of J. Reuben Clark. And he wrote a biography of J. Reuben Clark and it told all sorts of things that the church was very uncomfortable with being out there. So they bowdlerized it and Deseret Book published it in a much stripped down version. But the full version was later published by um, Signature and I really wanna buy it, but it is a very expensive book and their used copies cost just as much. So I haven't done it yet. What but was the word used? They bowdlerized it? They bowdlerized. So Bowdler was a guy who, um, I can't remember if he was American or British, but he would do things like, um, black out all the naughty parts of Shakespeare and you could buy the bowdlerized Shakespeare that has all the bad words taken out. Oh, like, clean, like clean, clean flicks. Yes. He, he was the original clean flicks guy. <laughs> so yeah, but D Michael Quinn is a really important historian. He will get excommunicated. I believe he's part of the September 6th that we've talked about before. And, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, but he's still working on Mormon stuff. He, yeah, the name was a bit familiar to me, but I yeah. don't know that much about him. Thank he's you written that. some pretty important stuff. Yeah. So um, Blake wrote this article, and where was it published, Eric? Oh, I don't know. Uh, let's say BYU Studies? Dialogue, a journal Dialogue, of Mormon thought. Hey! hey, speaking <laughs> of, let's pause for just a moment to promote yeah. the Dialogue Podcast Network. Also, I want to give a shout out to Andrew Hall, who runs the book report um, at Dialogue, which is, another, which is part of their podcast. Uh, he has gotten an AML Award nomination for Excellent. Best Podcast the first year that that award is happening. And, um, and I am appearing on, I think the next episode, but maybe it's out. I haven't checked. Okay. I'll watch so it. I'll be a guest. Extremely conservative and anti-communist. Wilkinson wasn't bashful in expressing his political philosophy to BYU students and faculty. <laughs> After his unsuccessful run for U.S. Senate in 1964, he returned to campus with a vengeance. Some of the employees publicly supported his opponent, Sherman Lloyd, in the primaries, which Wilkinson felt was disloyal. When he returned to BYU, he became aware of a group of liberal 
quotes, liberal teachers who were interested in changing the social and political atmosphere at BYU. He invited right-wing speakers to BYU and gave highly political speeches on campus. Wilkinson gave a lengthy May 1965 commencement address in which he attributed the beginning of moral decay of American values to Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal, as well as criticizing the current president, Lyndon B. Johnson's views of social security. Hoping to incite controversy, Wilkinson planned to give another politically charged speech in April 1966. He asked his comptroller, Joseph Bentley, to find students to report on professors' reactions to the speech. Bentley, in turn, asked student Stephen Hayes Russell to report on professors' reactions unofficially. The two made a list of professors to surveil, and Russell recruited 10 students to take notes on what the professor said about Wilkinson's speech in their classes. Political science professor Ray Hilliam was one of Bentley and Russell's targets. He was notified of the spy ring by one of his students, and he requested a formal hearing be arranged. In the first hearing on September 15th, presided over by vice presidents of the university, Hillam was formally charged for being pro-communist and disloyal to the, disloyal to the university with information gathered by the student spies used as evidence. Hillam rejected the charges and questions the motive of all involved. The vice presidents formally issued a report. It did not address that Hillam was a target of aspiring, only accusing him of minor discretions. They, one of the kids went on radio and like talked about the scandal and about the spies. And Wilkinson later admitted he did do this, but admitted any information that led him to appear guilty. What a story. Um, yes. It became so a national story. It became a national story. It got picked up. That's right. And yeah, spying in BYU in 1966 on liberal professors who were accused of communist propaganda. Um, Here's an example of one of Wilkinson's disingenuous statements. Okay. Um, because as we know, he engineered this entire thing. Quote, there is probably some truth to the charge that certain students had been organized to report on certain teachers and that the administration may have advertently or inadvertently encouraged these students, although not in the manner it took place, unquote. <laughs> um, uh, that's great. <laughs> uh, that's, that's use of the uh, passive voice in the worst possible way. <laughs> okay, so I don't have much to say about this. I mean, you could, maybe, maybe you're surprised by that because, you see, have I have I seen a lot of education persecution? You know, I I don't know that I have seen a lot of it. Um, <laughs> I, I, and you know, I go to you know, I'm. I'll tell you something that upsets me. You want to hear about it? Okay. Uh, so sorry. I guess I was just going to say that I found I I maybe this is bad of me, but I found this more amusing than I did like really upsetting. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's because it was 40, 50 years ago. Maybe, maybe that's why. If the news broke out today, it would be very embarrassing. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. Um, so BYU, I love BYU. It also, but because I love it, it can make me really, really upset. Uh -huh. And one of the things I find very upsetting is how, um, to go back to Howard University for a second, mm -hmm. um, a lot of 
a lot of the work that's been done the last 60 years or so in like African-American literature and studies and those sorts of things has been done um, initially by black professors, right? Like, because they're the ones who care. And that's how a lot of the stuff gets started. And we're starting to see that happen with Mormon studies, though not with Mormon literature, which is my baby. Um, but the natural place for this stuff to happen is at BYU. But does BYU have a Mormon studies chair? No. Other schools have Mormon studies chairs, not BYU. Um, if you want to publish on Mormon literature, will the English department find that an impressive thing? And no, you can't count that towards tenure if you if you publish in Mormon literature. Um, and so I, I, I suspect that things like the Wilkinson legacy and the September 6th legacy from the 90s, um, all this stuff is resulted where um, parts of BYU are really afraid to really engage with the faith because uh, there doesn't seem to be a way to do it without getting in trouble. And I find that really upsetting. Like this, I mean, what good is our, is the freedom to have a broad education if you can't study yourself? Well, if you, if, if what you're saying about About, I mean, yes, this would have been this story would have made people afraid to have views, right? And it was costly, yeah. like it cost the it cost the the college professors who left, right? And yeah. um, it was a big scandal. It was but, bad for the school's reputation, right? But if if what you're saying is that it's left a kind of a legacy of a <laughs> fear behind it, mm -hmm. well, that's not great. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I don't, I don't work at BYU, and I was there as a student, and I transferred in as a junior, so I don't feel like I really have the expertise to speak to this, but I will say in my conversations with people who work at BYU, um, aspects of the Wilkinson culture still exist among the faculty, and there are people who um, feel like they don't quite belong, um, thanks to the just just the vibe on campus and um i think that's terrible like mm -hmm. i really believe that zion and here i'm not talking about utah i'm talking uh -huh. about a community of the saints zion is a place where people of all types can come together and that doesn't just mean like racial diversity but it, it means like political diversity um so something that um the author d michael martindale said which I think is really wise, is that art is something about which perfect beings can disagree. And I think that's probably true about more things than just art. Um, over the weekend, I guess this is actually two weekends ago now, I read um, Eugene England's essay suggesting that a lot more Utahns should become Democrats because ultimately, um, there's wisdom in having a diversity of political opinions. And as Utah becomes more and more uh, homogenous politically, that it is not good. And it results in Utah specifically with there being like a Mormon party and a non-Mormon party, which leads to all different kinds of problems. Um, this is a different question for a different time, but I, I think the same issue is relevant to um, Brigham Young University. If there's not a diversity of ideas, then, um, it can become difficult to tell the difference between um, thinking the Book of Mormon is good and thinking tax cuts for the wealthy are good. 
And since everybody thinks both those things are true and there's such a strong correlation, it becomes natural to feel that they are equally true and equally important. And that's problematic. And um, I think BYU is actually getting better at this. Uh, based, that's my belief. But um, I do think it's something that whenever, whenever you make a group of people more homogenous, you have to be really careful that you don't knock out the ways in which they are still heterogeneous, if you will. I think it's great. I mean, like you said before, and I just feel like it's worth emphasizing, neither of us are at BYU at, at present, right? That is and, correct. You know, you were there when in college, right? Which was what, 40 years ago? <laughs> Thank you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Did you see the, oh, there was a, there was a chart that came out recently. I can't remember where I saw it, but um, it broke the members of the church down. Um, it was like Mormons who voted for Trump and it broke us down by 40 and above and people under 40. And so all of a sudden I'm grouped with all the old people now. Oh, that's terrible. You should write and, them a letter. And we're a bunch of Trump voters. Like I felt, I felt dirty. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> um, okay. Um, don't organize a spy ring. Um, let people be <laughs> liberal and let people be, you know, I guess conservative. I suppose. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, it's just a stand-in for everything, right? Um, there's, there should be a room for a diversity of opinions, and we shouldn't get so hung up on being right, because then the next thing you know, you're like recruiting Eight. undergrads to be spies. Eric, what did we start celebrate at the beginning of this podcast episode? If I remember correctly, it was a broad education. It was or truth, no, truth, truth. Yeah, seeking the truth wherever <laughs> it may be. Surely one of them is right. Yeah, it's a nice thought. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> next time we're going to talk about building in the church. Yes, yes, we are. Which is the next chapter in the series, and it's called, um, well, the building, building. Well, and we'll also talk program. about the temple building chapter, the church building, and the chapel building, and the temple building chapters. And that's the end of the book, if I'm not mistaken. Chapter nine, the building program, and maybe chapter 11. Maybe that's a separate episode. Yeah, they, it may be one episode, maybe two episodes. Time will tell. <laughs>